0: This special history episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the William M. Wood Foundation. Welcome to the Proceedings History Edition podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode of the podcast is Richard Latour, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Hello, Richard. Hi, Ward. Hi, Richard. So what's going on around uh, Naval History? What are some of the upcoming features in the magazine?
1: Okay, well, our June issue should be out shortly if it's uh, not already in your mailboxes. And we have a cover story about international ironclads by uh, historian Bruce Taylor. And also we have an excerpt from a graphic novel that's published by Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning is an imprint of the Naval Institute Press. And this graphic novel is by Garth Ennis, who is somewhat somewhat of a superstar in the graphic novel world. It's called The String Bags. And it's about swordfish torpedo planes in World War Two.
0: So we will have Garth on the podcast for a second time. Remember, he was on the show. uh, When was that? Like a winter ago when Night Witches came out. As, As you mentioned, he is a rock star in the world of graphic novels. So we look forward to talking to Garth again in the coming weeks. And I know you have a personal announcement for us.
1: Yes, I do, Ward. Um, Fifteen years ago, I took over as editor-in-chief of Naval History Magazine, and it's been a fantastic ride for me. Uh, but after much thought, I concluded that it's time for me to uh, step down and for new blood to take over the magazine. And uh, effective beginning of June, uh, the new editor-in-chief of Naval History will be Eric Mills. Um, I'll stay on in a reduced role. Eric uh, has a long history with the Naval Institute and Naval History Magazine. He's been with the Institute about 12 years, uh, has been working on naval history for about eight years, uh, initially as a senior editor. And then after he took over as manager of the Institute's oral history program, he's been a big contributor to the magazine, uh, writing the Naval History News section and also the pieces of the past department. So I'd now like to introduce Eric Mills.
2: Thank you very much, Richard.
0: So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Um, Is this the first time you've been on? It is. All right. Well, we look forward to many episodes to come. And as Richard mentioned, you're not new to the Naval Institute team. Richard Latour, we're very sad to see you go. Thank you for everything you've done on behalf of Pete and the entire Naval Institute team. Um, This is farewell, not goodbye, as you've mentioned. Uh, but you leave a bright legacy with where the magazine has gone in, in the time since you took over and also the pivot into the digital space. We've done a lot on your watch with respect to making naval history content accessible in the digital realm to include the appearances you've had on the podcast. You've been a host a number of times with great topics and if you look at the stats, the naval history topics of the episodes have always done done the best. So on behalf of the entire team, thank you for your efforts over the last 15 years.
2: Well, thanks very much, Ward. Very generous of you.
0: So, Eric, why don't we introduce our guest for this episode?
2: With us today is internationally acclaimed historian Richard B. Frank, author of the definitive work on Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal, and also the highly regarded Downfall. But today we're here to talk about his latest effort, a groundbreaking work, really, Tower of Skulls, A History of the Asia-Pacific War, July 1937 to May 1942. Richard, thank you for being here. I have to tell you, I'm enjoying the daylights out of your book. It's not only packed with great detail, it's offering me a whole fresh prism by which to look at World War II.
3: Well, thank you very much. And, and be- before we go further, let me just add my personal thanks to Richard Latour, Enjoyed very much working with him over the years, uh, many articles and conversations, and uh, I wish him, uh, you know, fair winds and following seas wherever wherever he goes. Thanks, thanks, Rich.
2: And you'll still be working with him in the future. That's the good news. He's still part of the family. Back to your um, new undertaking. It's the first of three volumes, and I have to say, it really does offer almost a paradigm shift in how we look at the Pacific War and World War II in general. Uh, By this approach, we see the Pacific War as really the extension of the Chinese-Japanese war that had already been raging for a number of years. And that creates all sorts of fresh perspectives.
3: Let me start off by saying that when you talk about paradigm shift, that's that's kind of exactly one of the overarching goals of this uh, narrative we've had sort of a standard narrative uh, we've been using for decades in this country about what we refer to as the Second World War. And in this standard narrative, we talk about the Second World War commencing in September, 1939 when Hitler attacks Poland. And then there's that other part of World War II in the Far East. And we normally talk about that as commencing with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December, 1941. And we call that the, the Pacific War. And, that sort of uh, World War II, and beginning in September 39, and the Pacific War beginning in December 41. That's basically what this trilogy is aimed to uh, change, just to how we look at this. And basically, what uh, I'm attempting to do is to take what we've called the Pacific War and integrate it in what I call really uh, what's truly the Asia Pacific War. And that's a war that began really in July 1937 when sustained hostilities began uh, between Japan and uh, China, and that war will go on for eight years. And then the Pacific War really amounts to the fact that Japan attacks us because we won't abandon China. And what the Asia-Pacific War really attempts to fully integrate into this is like what I call the Ark of Asia. And in July 1937, that area I would find as being from what was then in India on the west, which at that point included both Pakistan and Bangladesh. And it goes eastward across China to Japan and southeastward to what is now Indonesia. And in that region of the world at that time, there was over a billion people, literally just about half or half the population of the world at that time, which was about 2.3 billion people. And although that was half the population of the world, that whole region uh, at that point was, almost totally dominated by colonialism. And there were were only four nation states that had any claim of sovereignty at that time. Uh, There was uh, Siam, which very shortly became officially Thailand, and Japan, which actually had sovereignty. You had Mongolia, which was totally a Soviet satellite and had no real sovereignty. And you had China, which had very fractured uh, and divided sovereignty uh, due to uh, various uh, imperialist uh, incursions into China. And then there was one special case, which was the Philippines, which was effectively an American colony, but at that point, uh, we had promised the Filipinos independence in 1944, and they had been uh, managing their own internal affairs under a commonwealth. And of course, that would have a very important effect on how the Filipinos regarded the war that overtook them. Now, the other thing about calling calling things the Asia-Pacific War, the Pacific War, uh, can really be boil down to uh, two words, and those two words are the dead. Uh, there's this enormous disparity between defining these events as the Asia-Pacific War and the Pacific War. Using pretty standard uh, academic sources and the work of a lot of historians I respect and basically buying, biasing things towards the lower end, I think at a minimum about 25 million people died in the Asia-Pacific War. Uh, and of that, uh Number only about six million, perhaps, were combatants. About five out of six of those were either Chinese or Japanese, and that immediately tells you that about 19 million of the dead were non-combatants. Well, in my uh, gathering of data, I think if you if you push to the more higher end of what the Japanese non-combatant deaths were, you get a million, maybe 1.2 million dead, which immediately tells you the astonishing fact that for every Japanese non-combatant died. About 17 or 18 uh, other non-combats died. They were overwhelming the other Asians. About uh, 12 of them, or 12 million, were actually uh, Chinese. And this has tremendous relevance going down through, particularly into the anniversary year we're at, for the end of the war, because uh, in, the, in the summer of 1945, there were probably already somewhere between uh, uh, 15, 16 or more million dead Non-Japanese non-combatants, and about 8,000 non-Japanese non combatants were dying every day. About half of them Chinese, which gives you some insight into what this is. This is really all about ultimately. And the thing about calling it the Pacific War is that you talk about only a war between the U.S. and Japan, and that immediately excludes uh, almost all the non-combatant deaths, and makes the non-combatant deaths. That, Appear in the Pacific War to be totally Japanese, which is sort of a a grotesque inversion of of reality. So, those are some of the critical features about where the trilogy is going. And in addition to telling you what happened between 37 and 45, the the long term arc of the trilogy really intends to go to this point. Uh, In that area I call the Ark of Asia uh, in 1937, like I said, there were only four nation states with. uh, Any supposed claim to uh, sovereignty or real sovereignty. And today, in that same region, there are 19 major uh, sovereign nations, including uh, China and and India, and still contains about half the population of the world. And if you really track how all those 19 nations became independent, uh, all of them uh, are tied very intimately to what happened between 37 and 45 in various, often complex ways. So, this trilogy is not just about. Reframing what happened back in those eight years between 37 and 45. It's really about the world we live in in the 21st century.
2: So, yeah, I'm on board with uh, your recalibration of this. Um, somebody who hasn't delved in yet, they might see where you're starting, and perhaps they'll think, well, if you're going to backtrack it, why wouldn't you back it to Japan's conquest of all of Manchuria starting in late 1931, early 1932? Would that not be a place where you could also start such a narrative? You explain that in a text, but I thought you might want to. Kind of talk about that song.
3: Yeah, that's a uh, that's an interesting uh, issue among historians, not only in the U.S. but also in Japan and China. Uh, in 1931, the Japanese uh, army in the Wangtan Army sort of independently launched this effort that annexed Manchuria for Japan, and that's been sometimes pointed to as the starting point of hostilities and what's been called either the depending depending on your math and your cali, what's been called either the 14-year war or the 15-year war. The problems I have with that and the reason why I start in thirty seven, are, are simply that uh, neither the leaders nor most of the populations of either nation thought they were at war from 1931 to 1937. Secondly, uh, part of what the narrative talks about is this incredibly dysfunctional, uh, uh, opportunistic, faction-driven government that was running Japan and I simply cannot look at what is going on. And if I explain what goes on there, it's very hard to imagine that they had this master plan in 1931 that was going to lead from there all the way into uh, China, full-scale war in 37 or Pearl Harbor in 41. This was very fortuitous. If you were going to use 31 as the starting point, you might as well, in, in Europe, you would, you would go back to maybe the Spanish Civil War, Hitler's occupation of Rhineland or some other thing. And there's another version that goes back even further, and you go back to 1894 when the Japanese uh, defeated the uh, Qing fleet or whatever here, and they call it a war from 1894 to 1945. It's just my judgment that uh, war, as we would really conventionally think of it, didn't really get rolling until 1937.
1: Can Can you sort of set the scene for for the beginning of the war? Uh, which, uh, the Mar- uh, Marco Polo Bridge incident?
3: Let's see. Let me, let me start from the Chinese side. Uh, at at the 1937, when the, when the war began, uh, China was a very fractured state. The Japanese occupied Manchuria, as we discussed, several provinces down towards the Great Wall. The, the rest of China was an incredible mosaic of regional and local power brokers uh, all across China. The largest of these groups uh, were the nationalists under uh, General Shang Moshe, and they occupied seven of China's 30 provinces down in the lower Yangtze Valley. They were the most prosperous uh, provinces in China, by and large. And they also had about 170 million people, which was a little over half the 450 million people in China. Now, once you get beyond that area that Zhang controls, everything else is this incredibly fractured picture. And it is by not, uh, by any means, uh, actually a division as sometimes we think of it, or we we're taught to think of it, as a division between the nationalists and the communists. At the, at the moment the war starts rolling in July of 1937, the Chinese communists, having been kicked out of their original base area and settled up in Yunnan, and uh, great, even by Chinese standards, a very poor part of China, they occupied an area that had about one, the area under Mao's control I'm referring to now. Under Mao's control was had about 1.45 million people, which is not three percent of China's population, but three tenths of one percent. Uh, likewise, the China China had about 2.1 million people under arms, uh, of which Shang had about 60,000, uh, Mao had uh, about 30,000 who actually had arms, or about 1.5 percent. So the Communists are starting an extraordinarily low starting point, which is part of the picture, and that's part of what's going to then developed over the next uh, several volumes in particular. Chiang had realized from 1931 when, when Japan attacked China that ultimately there was going to have to be a showdown of war with, with Japan, but he appreciated just how incredibly difficult that was going to be, and that's why he was building up. He had German advisors. They were buying arms and equipment from primarily from Germany and elsewhere. And Chiang in, came under a lot of criticism uh, that he never wanted to fight the Japanese, but we know from His diaries, which were published in 2006, 2007, that that's not all the case. He was biding his time when he thought he was ready to take on the Japanese. The Japanese, meanwhile, uh, there have been a lot of clashes between Chinese and and Japanese forces in China. But at the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the Japanese uh, sort of uh, upped the ante. And basically, Zhang thought that uh, if he let them get away with uh, seizing more territory around Beijing, it would directly threaten not only his own base area, but basically threatened his status as China's primary leader. And he decided it was now it was going to have to be time for the showdown battle. And so that's how we we got into the Marco Polo Regions and it becoming sort of the spark that set everything off.
1: And and for Japan, what was what was their motivation
3: in invading China? Well, the the, the Japanese uh, basically thought of China not really as a nation state, but sort of this uh, they were a culture that had fallen into this incredible disrepute and disrepair, and that basically they were sort of a potential resource area uh, that they could mobilize to use for all purposes, and particularly against the Soviet Union, was what they were thinking of. Um, you also have this repeated theme that, that shows up again and again with with Imperial Japan, which is the uh, indiscipline uh, of the armed forces that uh, officers would strike out and do things, and uh, basically uh, never be held account by the national government, and eventually find other actions to be endorsed, and that accounts for a lot of things that happened not only up to thirty-seven, but right right on through the war. Um, it's one of those aspects about the Japanese government and the political culture. It's very hard for Americans to uh, appreciate we have a subordination of the military to the civilian authorities. And they had nothing like that uh, at the time. And there's this pattern, like I said, that goes on and on and on. All this stuff where people (laughs) basically do their own thing.
1: You point out in the book, at least early on, that these actions by these uh, officers were very popular with the Japanese public.
3: Right, they were. It was uh, that was one of the issues the Japanese got themselves into. They manipulated press coverage in such a fashion that uh, normally painted in very bright and positive colors anything the Japanese armed forces did, and the Japanese population rallied patriotically to this. And they sort of created, in some respects, I mean, they created sort of this monster uh, by doing this. It then became extremely difficult. Either in 1941. Uh, and the approach to Pearl Harbor in 1945 was the approach of ending the war to, to take actions that were likely to be incomprehensible to the Japanese people and lead to uh, literally an internal revolt. This was a major issue for Japanese decision makers in 41 and
2: 45. As you point out, Chiang Kai-shek seems to have his work cut out for him. Um, uh, as you note in the book, it was regarded that a single Japanese regiment was a match for a full division of Chiang Kai-shek's Central Army.
3: Right, and Shang's central army units were the best trained and equipped uh, in the in the Chinese army. I mean, they they had this two point one million men under arms, but most of the units uh, were not remotely as well equipped or trained as the uh, Japanese were. Uh, the Japanese also had a full array of military uh, uh, teaching institutions for everything from the you know platoon level all the way up to staff level at the very high, highest levels. The Chinese were lagging terribly in that. That's one of the reasons why he brought in. First Germany and later Soviet advisors, or whatever. The Chinese were uh, they were they were like they had a lot of muscle, but not a a, uh, a nervous system connect the brains to the muscle. Uh, whereas the Japanese were very, by comparison, were very agile. And also, the Japanese firepower was much much more marked. The Japanese had a quickly established air and sea supremacy. And if you were a Chinese unit and up against them, uh, the the firepower disparity was just Enormous. Uh, there's a Chinese uh, Red Army general who later, uh, in one incident, he says, you know, we could outnumber them seven to one and they would still win. Uh, that was a sort of disparity of the ability of Chinese to stand up to the, the Japanese. But this leads into basically how, the, when the war gets started, Marco Polo Bridges, and it was up around Beijing, which is essentially up in more northern China. Uh, when Zhang was contemplating uh, how this war was going to be fought, he uh, looked at uh, northern China and decided that that would be an area, because of its level terrain and some other features, that would give, uh, enhance the Japanese advantages. And that's why he chose to make the first major battle in Shanghai, because its a very crowded urban scape uh, basically maximized the ability of uh, Chinese forces in terms of simply having large manpower and small arms. And that's basically what happened. Uh, the battle in Shanghai, which is now almost totally forgotten, uh, between August and November 1937, uh, was by far the largest battle in a city prior to Stalingrad. Uh, there were, Before it's over, there's going to be a quarter of a million Japanese and three-quarters of a million Chinese battling in the city. Uh, and what's important from the Chinese standpoint is that uh, they basically had not been able to put up what we call a good fight against the westernized power since uh, 100 years, since the Opium War in 1839. And around Shanghai, for the very first time, they put up effective resistance that uh, frustrates the Japanese. It drags on months and months and months. And it's uh, it's going to instill in the Chinese the notion that even though they lose the battle, there's the prospect that they can eventually uh, triumph.
2: So even though they had the advantages going in, as you describe it in there, the Jap- Japan ends up in a quagmire in China, do they not?
3: When the Battle of Shanghai starts, uh, the Japanese were looking at literally a century of history in which the Chinese might be able to put up struggle for a week or a couple of weeks or whatever. There would never been a uh, Chinese central government that really sustained a war against the westernized power for more than about a year. And almost all those episodes ended in this Chinese rout and humiliation. So when the war around Shanghai begins, the Japanese assume that, well, that's the, that's the template. That's what's going to happen once we get some troops in here to clean things up. Well, that doesn't happen. So the battle goes on and on and on. And then when they finally do prevail in Shanghai, they make the strategic decision that, well, if we just march to the nationalist capital, which is then in Nanjing, uh, and capture that, then that will bring the war to a close. Well, they marched to Nanjing in December of 37, and it takes place, which is called the Rape of Nanjing, which becomes, of course, inf- infamous. And still the Chinese don't quit. And so then uh, Shang has pulled his government back to Wuhan, the Wuhan cities we've heard so much about. And in 1938, from April to October, there's this tremendous battle that takes place as the Japanese are trying to close in on Wuhan, and eventually the Japanese do prevail. By the way, one of the things that enables them to prevail is they use poison gas in the battlefield. Of we know, they're the only combatant in World War II that uses poison gas actually on the battlefield during the war. And strangely enough, though, at the end, uh, although the Chinese have lost uh, almost all the battles, they, they win an important one in April the 38th, but they lose the rest of them. Uh, the Japanese high command and uh, the Imperial Army's Operation side, right in our war diary, that basically they've determined that there's no way they can force China to quit the war by military means. In other words, now they're in a quagmire. And this is in October 1938. The war is only like uh, about 14, 15 months old. And it's going to go on for eight years. But the Japanese are already snared in this quagmire that's going to go on and it's going to be a huge issue with respect to uh, dealing with the U.S.
0: Richard, is there Western awareness of what's happening here? I mean, what, what, what is known in the United States about the rape of, of Nanking or any of the other elements, like you say, the use of chemical weapons? And is there an international outcry about this, or, or, or are we just blissfully ignorant of what's happening here?
3: Uh, it's an interesting question. And um, I've been reading the New York Times day by day through World War II, and uh, the coverage of what's going on in China is there. Uh, and what's really interesting is one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Thomas Doherty at Brandeis, uh, has gone through all the newsreels that were shown in American theaters in the late 30s into into World War II. And the average American went to the theater, um, movie theater, twice a week. And the standard program always had a newsreel. And what Tom pointed out to me, and this has been years ago, he said was, what he found when he looked at this was that Uh, Because where the Japanese were waging war, were bombing, were attacking, was frequently within the camera range of Western journalists, there were uh, many more viscerally graphic images of the Japanese committing uh, crimes and atrocities against the Chinese than anything an American saw prior to Pearl Harbor about the Germans. The Germans didn't let people run around with cameras taking pictures of the terrible things they were doing. So the average American uh, got this incredible image of this and it, and it shows up in the Gallup polls right when the war first starts. There's more than half the American people are sort of indifferent different about what's happening in China. But by 1941, when the uh, Gallup poll asked the uh, usual samples, says you know, how do you feel about the war? And uh, there's 2% who will volunteer. They support the Japanese. And about 77% support the Chinese. So the image of China being savaged strikes home here. And also it begins to be associated, thanks to other work, with the whole issue of the Axis nations on the march across the globe. So it's not, it's not lost on the American people what's going on in China. By mid-1939,
1: the fighting is not just restricted to the Japanese and Chinese. Can you describe what happened along the Manchurian border?
3: Manchurian border put uh, the Japanese and the Soviets, uh, the Soviet, uh, uh, basically, uh, their disciples in uh, direct contact. And between uh, April and uh, August of 1939, there took place this uh, battle along the Manchurian frontier, uh, which the Japanese refer to as the Battle of Nomohan after this nondescript town in this border dispute about where exactly the border rested. And in that battle, uh, there was only about the equivalent of maybe two Japanese divisions involved. And the Soviets eventually mustered uh, this big army under Georgi Zhukov, who later becomes very famous in World War II, and they just collaborate uh, the Japanese. Uh, And, of course, this uh, is a big shock to the Imperial Army because their principal enemy uh, was the Soviet Russian and later the Soviet Union. And the Imperial Army's whole... uh, uh, operational, strategic, operational, and tactical outlook was all based on the theories about how they would have to confront and deal with the Soviets, knowing that they would be uh, they'd be outnumbered and outgunned. And this uh, thrashing that's administered this Japanese uh, contingent in, in Manchuria has a very sobering effect uh, on the uh, Imperial Army. Although that said, uh, in 1941, when looks like Hitler's going to uh, knock the Soviets out of the war. There are plenty of Japanese generals who were eager to get in uh, in 1941 to help the Germans uh, beat the Soviets. What were the repercussions of
1: of that uh, Japanese defeat on overall Japanese strategy?
3: Well, That's a good question, Uh, but the the answer uh, basically is that they still were very concerned about the Soviets, the Imperial Army uh, basically has no way of revising their, their strategic operational, their operational and tactical doctrine because uh, they, they simply don't have the industrial base to match up to the Soviets and the sort of weaponry and mechanization uh, that the Soviets are going to come mind. It does, however, uh, begin to uh, make the uh, efforts of the Imperial Navy to talk about striking south, particularly to seize oil, to take care of this one great uh, gap in, gap in uh, Japanese capabilities. They have virtually no oil in the home islands. They have to bring the oil in. And from thirty seven to mid-1941, they get about 75 or 80 percent of it from the U.S. And the other obvious source is the Dutch East Indies, or what's now Indonesia, which is what they're going to strike for in 1941.
0: So the Asia-Pacific War is primarily a land war. What were they doing to develop their sea fighting capability, particularly aircraft carriers?
3: Oh, well, that that was that's one of the problems the Japanese had, was the Imperial Army and the Imperial Navy prepared for two different wars. The Imperial Army wanted to fight a land war in Asia. The Imperial Navy was uh, looking to fight, uh, uh, probably fight the U.S., or at least that was certainly the budget justification for the expenditures on the Imperial Navy. And the Navy was uh, considering... Japan's overall economic and industrial situation, the Navy got a, a, a large share of national resources and a large share of the budget, much of this agreement with the Imperial Army. Uh, the Japanese Navy was uh, uh, developing, in many ways, uh, a whole operational and tactical doctrine to how it was going to fight the U.S. Navy in, in the Pacific. We tend to think about the war uh, on the Asian continent, particularly in China, it's dominated by images of Japanese soldiers marching around Japanese aircraft bombing uh, Chinese cities, which was very extensive and was really quite a shock, much more so, much earlier than anything relating to the Germans. But what happened from 1937 uh, gradually and then with uh, greater emphasis and effectiveness, the Japanese Imperial Navy began uh, conducting a blockade of China's Pacific coast. And in that, they were eventually joined by operations of the Imperial Army, which helps certain uh, ports and also uh, to drive up some of the major rivers like the uh, Yangtze River in China were combined operations. And the the effect of this uh, blockade, which was then made a lot tighter in 1942 when they conquered Burma and then cut the last land route by the Burma Road to China, the effect of this had uh, four major impacts on the Chinese, and they were all very important, but the last of these is, is the most important of all. The first thing it did was that it basically severely constricted the ability of the Chinese to secure munitions from outside. Uh, Shang had stockpiled munitions from 31 to 40, 37, uh, and the Japanese and Chinese had also evacuated some of their base to the interior, but uh, by after. 38, 39, basically, uh, the Chinese had run through a great deal of their stockpiles. They weren't producing that much. They needed outside support, and they were getting very, very little due to the Chinese uh, Japanese blockade. The second thing that happened was that uh, we tend to imagine China as being, uh, you know, uh, a land of uh, peasant uh, rice farmers, and therefore its food situation was secure. But in point of fact, uh, as Hans Van de Ven- Cambridge University points out, they were dependent through that era on 10 to 20% of their food supply from imports. And of course, the Japanese blockade got those off. And food security would become a huge issue after about 1940 in China. And of course, there was a tremendous famine in 43, 44. So the blockade also had a very important effect on that. The third thing that the blockade did, which was uh, these combined operations between the Imperial Army and Imperial uh, Navy. Was that they basically booted the nationalists out of their original seven province base area. I mean, that was the principal area the Japanese moved into and occupied. And they moved the nationalists out of their original base area and left them in this very awkward situation of frequently having to negotiate arrangements with other power brokers, regional and local. Further, the main armies of Zhang had been conducting most of the fighting uh, with some of the other regional leaders who supported Zhang very strongly. And uh, the arm was damaged, and its intimidation uh, value against other Chinese uh, power workers was uh, diminished. So that had a tremendous impact on the ability of the uh, nationalists to uh, recruit troops, uh, uh, gather food. All these things really had a tremendous detriment, long-term effect on the prospects of the nationalists. But by far, in a way, the, the most important thing the blockade did was this, this fourth thing. And that's that. The Chinese government that Zhang was running had inherited from the dynastic period the fact that China depended on uh, customs duties for almost half total revenue going to the national government. In 1937. it was about 48%. So when the Japanese cut off all the ports and all the external access for all practical purposes, uh, this is a stupendous blow at the revenue the government needs to support support itself and sustain a war. Furthermore, the Japanese overrun a lot of territories, which are important in various ways in the tax base. So roughly it's estimated that the revenues flowing to the central Chinese government by the end of uh, 30, 38 39 uh, had collapsed by either two-thirds or, or 75%. Well, how, how do you make war without money? Well, you can't really do that. So what you do is what the nationalists do which is they print money and sort of inflation inflation has been aptly compared to like Luke in the body it's just really gradual gradually uh, toous weakening weakening uh, effect and by uh, 43 for instance in these articles in the New York Times it points out that inflation is the single biggest issue in China because of all its effects on prices the stability of prices the it enhances uh, black market activity it has absolutely devastating effect on the uh, the, the competence and ability of the nationalists to carry on the war. So that naval blockade that the Japanese conduct uh, against China was one of the most important things that they do in terms of the war against China. And the final point I would make is that if you are uh, now in the PRC and you know anything about your history going back to World War II, and you're looking at these devastating uh, blockades, that must be a very interesting little historical nugget to be filed away both in terms of the issues of China's own vulnerability and especially with respect to Taiwan. So this has resonance right down to...
2: That sets me up for the question I wanted to ask you, Rich. The U.S. Navy has re-embraced the um, geographical theater descriptor Asia-Pacific, which makes a certain prescience to um, your approach to looking at this. And one thing that I notice that runs through this is the severe enmity and animosity to China toward Japan really stems back to some of these atrocities then and it lives on to this day so I wonder if you want to comment on how the cataclysmic Asia-Pacific War of then still resonates with the Asia-Pacific situation today
3: well it, it certainly does and it gets back to what I was pointing out is that um, the, the tremendous uh, non combatant death toll in the Asia-Pacific War which are overwhelmingly uh, not Japanese, they're uh, people. The, the biggest uh, casualties, as far as we know now, we, we figure Chinese uh, non-combatants were about 12 million. And, and I should caveat that by saying there's this whole literature out there that will put Chinese losses much higher than that. I go with uh, the work of Professor ron Metter at Oxford. who says what he thinks is the reasonable range for Chinese uh, casualties in the World War II period. Uh, and I mean the Asia-Pacific War period, 37 to 45, he says could be anywhere between 14 and 20 million, of which about 12 million uh, uh, at the the low end, 14 million. The 12 million of those would be non-combatants. Then you have an enormous number of deaths that occur in what's now Indonesia. Depending on what numbers you use, you get between uh, 3.4 and 4 million daily starvation-related and disease due to starvation. Uh, You have this tremendous famine Vietnam in 1945, which is virtually no one ever talks about, and it kills about a million Vietnamese. It's been called the, the worst the worst part of the 20th century in uh, Vietnam, which tells you something. Uh, you have tremendous death toll in India uh, uh, due to the uh, famine there in 43-44, which probably could have been averted if they'd had access to rice from uh, Burma, as they normally did, but Japan had cut that off. And you can go down this whole list of nations in which the effects of Japan's uh, activities had this left this tremendous death toll. Uh, another little tidbit is: is the Japanese were facing in forty five the prospect of this enormous uh, uh, prospect of famine in Japan? They were in the process in the latter part of the summer of ripping a million tons of rice out of Korea to ship to Japan and to help with the Koreans. I mean that perhaps a sort of uh, back. To why there's so much enmity about uh, Japan to this very day, and the fact that many Asians think that Japan never uh, followed the German model to really attempt to seriously uh, apologize or atone for things. Now, all that said, though, I, I will say that with um, respect to China in particular, this is there are multiple uses to remembering the war with Japan, and part of it is genuine. It sticks back to these. Uh, things that happened from 37 to 45 but part of it is also uh, if you're uh, the communist party running the prc right now your primary fallback for legitimacy is sort of nationalism and nothing resonates quite as well with na- is nationalism as you know remembering what the, what the japanese did so
0: the book is tower of skulls A history of the asia pacific war july 1937 to may 1942 the author is our good friend Richard B. Frank. Richard, thanks for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today.
3: Thank you very much for
0: having me. And that's going to do it for this episode, this special history episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.